The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 23. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and we are hurtling towards the end of Season 4. All limbs intact, presumably. All teeth accounted for, I hope. And one hell of an appetite for all things Hill. Did you like that? Pretty slick, no? All things Hill? Oh my god. You don't like it. Well, what if I just trim it a little? No. Still no. Hmm. Well, you'll like the story at least. That is one thing I can still deliver on. Tonight's spine tickler, or is it tingler? Hmm. Tonight's story comes from Horror Hill newcomer Steve Tose, and is sure to send quivers down your spine. Um, quivers. Shit. (laughs) Shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscary.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Wow, it was a beautiful sun death this evening. And the nightmares just come to life. Wow. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't... Is that the darkness already? My... And here I haven't even had enough time to put my face on. How mortifying. (laughs) 
now, without further ado, from author Steve Tose, I give you The Jaws of Ouroboros. Broken feathers slid out of pinion songbirds in the hawthorn hedge above me, falling as rotted gray rain. The ditch was not the dirtiest place I'd hidden myself in my life, but it was by far the most unpleasant. I knelt on sun-faded crisp packets, crushing down festering fur and hollow bones that snapped as I shuffled around and tried to get comfortable. Pasha rested forward on the ditch edge, staring through a set of night-vision goggles into the field beyond. Grains of silt and clay clods smeared across his cheeks as they forced their way past, dragged upward and out of sight. Out of habit, I reached down and checked the drab-colored climbing rope around my waist, fingers tracing the knots like rosary. Four other teams around the edge, one in the fox covert on the far side of the stone circle, he said, not bothering to quieten his voice. Over the sound of sandstone grinding against sandstone, we barely heard each other speak. Are you going for all of them? I asked, leaning close. He grinned, rubbing his face to smudge more dirt across his skin, and pulled out the machete from inside his jacket. Every single one. He pushed himself out of the back of the hedge, using his rope to help him gain a solid footing on the convulsing soil. The standing stones had always been teeth. We did not see the jaws until they started chewing the earth from under our feet and tires. From underneath our towns, all across the country, the landscape was eating itself. The topsoil itself digested. If you stilled yourself and watched the fields for long enough, it seemed the plow furrows themselves were being torn from the land. Branches, hay bales... Empty fertilizer sacks, old farm machinery, and dead sheep. Anything too immobile to resist the gnawing of the stone circles was ground paste and swallowed down hollow, echoing throats. Some of the masticated substance leaked out, pressed between millstone grit incisors to dry on the exposed sun-beaten rock. White Ambergris was the popular name. For those brave enough to risk their lives collecting it from between the crushing orthostats, it was worth a lot of money. We could feed a family for months, much more than whale vomit. Our client's taste, however, was a bit richer. Pasha knew his work. I did not hear him slicing through the safety ropes of the rival collectors, fibers unwrapping like severed tendons as they were set free from the security of the horizontal tethers. He just slit the throats of the anchormen minding the ropes in the undergrowth and tipped their unresisting bodies out onto the plow furrows. It wasn't that I had a particular problem with killing, or that Pasha was better at taking lives. If necessary, I could be as efficient as him. The other part of the job freaked him out. The collection. Me? I didn't mind getting up close to the crushing stones as they consumed the fields in which they stood. Maybe it was the relentless hunger that unnerved him. Too close to home, saw too much of himself in the continuous grinding of those stone teeth. Half an hour later, he was sat next to me again with a black eye and cut across his face, rope tethered back around his waist, 
one of them put up a fight, but my knife was bigger than his, he said, and tapped the blood-stained wooden handle of the machete with a grin. Next was the waiting game. Heavier objects like livestock or dead bodies got carried toward the stone circles quicker. Taking turns with the night vision goggles, we watched ten bodies tumble across the field like enthusiastic crowd surfers carried by an aggressive audience. We listened to the sound change as sandstone crushed rib cages instead of soil and dead crops. We waited until the powdering of bone finished and the noise dulled back to a steady hum. You're up, Pasha said, patting me on the back. I nodded and rechecked my ropes and checked them again, because you really can't be too careful. I watched him roll a cigarette and light it, coal end glowing in the scratching twilight of the hedge, wondering, not for the first time, why I trusted him. Money. Money was the reason I trusted him. Money was the reason why I let such a cutthroat watch my back. Without me, he got nothing. I could have just let the tide of shifting dirt carry me to the stones, but that was uncontrolled and slow. Instead, I dragged myself on all fours, using some of the momentum of the field to push off with each foot. Getting there was the easy bit. Digging my steel toe caps into the constantly moving furrows, I leant forward and scraped my fingers down the surface of the stones. White ambergris felt like congealed fat, peppered with splinters and grains of soil. I pushed my fingers deep into the paste, trying not to gag at the smell. I'd only smelt it in two other places, abattoirs and battlefields, a mixture of fermented grass and warm, clotting blood. Bone splinters stuck to my skin. This was what we wanted. I opened the first canvas bag and wiped the mixture inside. Working my way around the outside of the circle, the danger was the rope snagging between the orthostats and severing, leaving nothing to drag myself to safety. Every couple of feet I checked the knots, checked the tension, and moved on to the next gap trying not to think what might lie inside that stone mouth. What might be at the bottom of the throat? In the early days, they tried sending men down, experienced cavers. Then, when they did not come back, they tried drones. There were rumors that the operators never recovered from what they saw on their monitors. I tried not to listen to rumors. They slowed you down. In an hour, I'd worked my way around one side, back to the center, then around the other, two full bags across my back, two more tied to the rope. Getting out was like walking up a down escalator. Several times I felt myself losing momentum. Several times I felt sure the churn of dirt would drag me like Pasha's victims between the stones. But over the next hour, I made my way back to the hedge landing exhausted in the ditch. How much? Pasha said, turning on a torch and letting the beam scud across the hall. Four bags. He shook his head. Doesn't seem much for ten people, does it? Not at all, I said, rested my head back against the branches behind me, and closed my eyes.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Even in the dark, the crane-like dragline was too large to comprehend. Over 22 stories tall, it looked as if a small city block had been dropped into the field. The boom stretched above overgrown hedges, immobile like a gallows pole. We got out of the car, and I opened the boot to take out the bags. Pasha locked up. Not that there was anyone around to steal the thing. The air smelt of silicon grease and human sweat. That's just showing off, Pasha said, sounding more impressed than he meant to at the scale of the vast excavator. He grabbed two of the bags, and I went to open the field gate. Each crosspiece had row upon row of small mammals nailed to it. Ugh, what are those? Pasha said, the note of disgust in his voice unexpected from a person who slit throats for petty change. I knelt down for a closer look. Moles? Dozens of dead moles. I reached out and touched one, my finger brushing the desiccated skin of its paws. I wondered how many had ended up milled between the teeth of animated stone circles. Maybe these were the lucky ones. All but the smallest drag lines walked on feet, and this was one of the largest, balanced on hydraulic pontoons, each the size of a small truck. Few had been converted into private fiefdoms, though. Even this far from any megaliths, the ground rumbled with a constant, unyielding consumption. Maybe a walking fortress the size of a small village was a good idea. A curve of arc lights pinned us in place. I put the bags on the ground and waited for the reception committee. I had no doubt that beyond those lights, there was enough firepower to smear us to bone meal. We stayed still. Footsteps rattled down the outside of the drag line until five men stood in front of us. The bodyguards bruised us in their thorough search for weapons, found our knives and showed them to each other, laughed, and handed them back. A sixth figure stepped out of the shadows and stretched out his hand. Even by the standard of high-level drug dealers, Papa Yaga was pure evil, and the knowledge he'd personally requested to meet us made me very nervous. You survived in my industry by not being noticed. Mundane and average were the qualities of a long career. We'd been too good, too quickly and we were now on the private property of one of the most dangerous men in the country. Your team, who have been so successful in harvesting high-quality product for me. He smiled, feldspar glittering in the grayed enamel of his teeth. So he was a user too. He was short, 
nearly up to my shoulder, and slender, wearing heavy tweeds, mud-caked expensive hiking boots with a shooting stick and a leather strap across his shoulder. We've been lucky, I said. Pasha normally left the talking to me. Not that he couldn't string a sentence together, he just never knew when to finish, his mouth finding more words than was good for the situation. I preferred to speak with precision, and never for very long. In my experience, luck is something crafted with chisels and hammers. Your acquisition has been too good to be pure luck, Papiaka said. He walked forward and rested a hand on Pasha's arm, his other on mine. Let us walk to my office and inspect your latest crop. I expected us to go inside the drag line, and when his men turned in the direction of the boom, I felt sure we were going to get powdered into the plow soil. He felt me tense. Don't be so nervous all the time. You tore my golden egg-laying geese, my prize sows, my show-winning heifers. I have no intention of disposing of you just when you're making me so much money. The mucking of the drag line was vast. We waited while one of Papa Yaga's men found a torch and led us inside. The sheer scale started to sink in. The bucket was big enough to hold a large boardroom table, several bookcases and filing cabinets. The walls left bare metal, stained with rust and rain. One of Papa Yaga's men wrenched down a heavy set of roller doors. We each pulled a chair up to the table, and somewhere out of sight a generator started. Above us, lights flickered like swallows. I glanced around the room. Cobbles and dirt accreted to the corners of the uppermost corners, making it more cave-like than industrial. Grains of soil shuddered loose with the dance of the generator, rattling and bouncing against the steel floor. Any questions before we start? Papayaga said, sitting down opposite and folding his arms. What's with the moles? Asha said. I looked down at my hands and prayed to the gods that might still notice me. Moles? Papayaga tensed. Behind him, two of his bodyguards reached under their donkey jackets. He means the gate. The skin's nailed to the field gate, I said, glancing over at Pasha. He was oblivious staring up at the lights. Oh, those, Papayaga said, laughing. He leaned across the table. Because the neighbors get too fucking upset if I nail the flayed torsos of my victims up in the lanes where the tourists can see. I glanced over at Pasha and just hoped he realized how close he was to getting us decapitated. Golden eggs or no golden eggs. <laughs> I am joking. They've been there for years, some old gamekeeper folklore, meant to scare away the rest of the moles. Hasn't fucking worked. Oh. Would you like to test the product? I said, lifting one of the canvas bags into the center of the table. fee fi fo fum Papa Yaga said. Several of his men laughed. For a moment, I was tempted to follow suit, but kept quiet. Fee fi fo fum, he continued. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Grind his bones to make my bread. I shook my head. Clueless was better than cocky. He pushed his hand inside the bag, pulling out a lump of the thick white paste. The smell was more subtle now, 
but still filled the room with the stench of wet hay and clotting. From the center, he dragged out a splinter of bone, a goblet of muscle still attached. We call this giant's dough when we market it to clients. It has the uh, additions you work so hard to acquire. My little joke. Dipping the bone back into the bag, he came up with a strand of dirty white giant's dough, placed it in his mouth, and with the tip of his tongue, rubbed it into his gums. The whites of his eyes turned autumn leaf russet, fading to the color of stagnant water and dirty syringes, infected wounds and seeping sores. I'd never watched anyone use normal white ambergris, never mind the stuff we collected. Drugs were not my interest, apart from the money to be made from them. I had no idea how long the effect would last, and glanced across to Pasha, who, with a sense of etiquette I had not seen from him before, shrugged so small it might not have been noticed by any one of the guards who stood around us. Something shifted within Papa Yaga, and his eyes returned to their previous gray color. He weighed the bag in his hand. How many went into this little mixture? Ten, Pasha said. Some still breathing, others not so much. Don't know if that makes a difference. Hmm, can't taste any of the wraps inside you. Maybe the odd little gurgle of congealing blood around the edges, but uh, I wouldn't be where I am today if I was put off by a little congealing blood. We don't know how much actually gets pushed out between the stones, I said quickly, making sure we didn't oversell ourselves. Of course, he said. I know this isn't some cordon bleu recipe. More a one-part cookadol, see what comes out at the end. If you need more killing to improve the taste, I'm happy to do that for you. Fifteen? Twenty? Makes no odds to me. There was a manic energy in Pasha's voice. Looking back, I think that was the moment I decided to dissolve our partnership as soon as politic. Papayaga glanced over at me for a reaction. I distracted myself by lifting the other three bags onto the table. Canvas bags, as your employee requested, to avoid contamination, I said. Papayaga turned and spoke to one of his men who left, ducking under the roller doors. We all sat in silence until he came back with a set of scales and placed them in the middle of the table. I watched Pasha while they weighed the white ambergris, or giant stow or whatever they wanted to call the crushed paste of several acres of English countryside and ten corpses. He couldn't keep his eyes still, gaze flicking from the piles and scales to Papa Yaga and his men. There was a hunger there, a hunger that was going to get us killed if I wasn't careful. I did not want to die because of his appetites. One of the men noted down the quantities and did some conversions in an old desktop calculator and showed the total to Papa Yaga, waiting for approval which came with a slight nod. Do we get to see how much you're paying us? Pasha said. I reached into my pocket for my knife. Maybe. If I slit his throat first, I might get out myself. You worry too much, Papa Yaga said. As before. You will be well compensated for your work. I know how specialist your skills are. No need to worry about me conning you. I can pay you a very good rate and still make myself a small fucking fortune. 
Don't worry about that, little killing man. Follow me. Papayaga walked out first, back to us, his men dropping in behind. It took a few moments for my eyes to adapt to the darkness. Until then, I followed the sound of his footsteps. We stopped by one of the pontoons, a narrow ladder built into the giant hydraulic foot. I don't like to bring currency outside until it's leaving my possession, he said by way of explanation. He climbed first. I followed. I had the feeling if I let Pasha go next, he would get some stupid idea he could take advantage of that turned back. From the top of the dragline's foot, we climbed a second ladder, and then a third. I'm only guessing, but I'm pretty sure when the dragline was tearing millions of years of geology from open-cast mines, there was no need for a panoramic penthouse. In the center was a small lounge. What wasn't covered in leather was coated in chrome. Two young, half-naked models, one male, one female, draped over a white leather sofa the size of a family car. Please, take a seat, Habayaga said. He nodded to one of his men who returned a few minutes later with a hold-all. I glanced in the top. Stacks of 500 euro notes bulged against the open zip. I caught Pasha's eye and got a gut feeling he was going to say something. I shook my head and hoped no one else noticed. Beside me, one of the models smirked. That all looks fine, I said. The need to be somewhere else getting more intense by the minute. Another delivery soon? Papa Yaga said, the glow from the in-floor lighting glittering off his igneous teeth. As soon as we can. We try to not harvest the same stone circles too often. We need, uh, tragic accidents, not rumors. If there are rumors, there won't be any product. Of course, Papayaga said, but not too long. I have a lot of buyers waiting. I spent three more nights with Pasha on the edges of stone circles consuming the land while he severed throats and ropes. Three seemed like a good number to put distance between the audience at the drag line while still getting out before Pasha got me killed. My instincts were right. Each time we went out, he got more erratic, more unpredictable. I could tell his attention was elsewhere. If I'd have known where, I'd have let the stones take him. I went to see Papa Yaga in person because he struck me as a man who believed in etiquette and explained Pasha would be carrying on with a new partner. Explained I was retiring. For family reasons. Oh, families can be very problematic in our line of work, he said, and held out his hand. I moved to Hamburg where I had no family. I knew no one. They caught me in Munich six months later, grabbing me as I left a small goth club in Koltfabrik. Whatever they injected into my arm cascaded me through a thousand personal hells. It was a long time before I smelt dry ice without checking to see if my skin was being scalded from my face. Waking to find both arms dislocated was a relief. It was dusk when I was halfway along the dragline boom, legs a meter above the ground, arms wrenched out of my sockets behind my back. All my weight hung on narrow bracelets of gristle eroded into my wrists. 
I gritted my teeth and tried to stay still. I really appreciated your honesty in coming to speak to me in person, even though you were lying about family. It was an understandable and acceptable lie. Papayaga was below me, sitting on his shooting stick, his tweed jacket thrown across his shoulder. If I'd found out my partner was so much of a liability, I would have lied for the solution. The better lie would have been, I am sorry, Papa Yaga. My partner had an unfortunate accident where he impaled himself on an iron spike. And as I am too old in the tooth to work with another partner, I wish to retire. I'd have tried to persuade you. You would have reluctantly but politely declined and we'd have parted ways to never cross paths again. He grabbed my bare foot and massaged the arch with his fingers, a soothing sensation going up my leg. I knew you weren't retiring to look after your family. You struck me as far too sensible to work for me and have any relatives. Your ex-colleague, it won't surprise you to find out, was not as bright. He decided to try and rip me off, keep the giant's dough for himself, and give me some white amber grease with cattle bone pushed in. As if I couldn't tell the difference. We caught this partner, some chunky amateur, and flayed the blistered skin from him over several days. Pasha must have got wind and run. We had to pick up some cousin he stupidly visited a couple of months ago. The cousin didn't know anything. Using my bare foot, Papa Yaga slowly spun me around until I faced the main body of the drag line. The figure was pinioned just below the pelvis, steel cable on one side, pulley wheel on the other. Precision placed to prolong life. The early evening light was too faded to make out too many details. Even over the sound of my own torn tendons, I heard the whimpering. It is rare this day I have a reason to fire up this old darling. I felt uh, finding your ex-colleague's cousin justified the cost in electricity. The drag line came alive. Vibrations from the engines sent tears further into my tendons. I screamed despite myself. Above me, steel cable rattled against metal guides then started to move. The cousin was dragged further into the crush of the pulley, hoist ropes resisting the blockage. Papa Yaga held me. Don't close your eyes or look away. I will cut your eyelids off myself. The air filled with the stench of friction until momentum eroded through the cousin's pelvis. The two halves of torso tumbled into a patch of corn stubble. Plumes of steam rose as the last of the body heat hit the cold air. If you're amiable, I would like you to track down your ex-colleague and give me the address. Then uh, we really will never have to see each other again. If this was a film, I would have asked, and if I don't, He'd have tortured me in increasingly inventive ways. It wasn't a film, and I had every intention of doing this last bit of dirty work for Papa Yaga. It wasn't like I had any lasting loyalty to Pasha. Over the next few hours, they gave me a few more scars, just to make sure I understood my place in the plan. 
but all the while they seemed almost apologetic. Another syringe finished me off. When I woke, I was in a nice, anonymous medical facility overlooking some rolling moorland. I was sure the purple heather was dancing, and I couldn't help wondering where the nearest stone circle was, or how long it would be before the walls would be crushed to splinters between the orthostat's molars. I don't know what worried me more. Papa Yaga suspending me until my shoulders tore out of their sockets, or paying for the best healthcare money could buy to patch me up before I did his hunting for him. I lost track of how many days I spent in that private room. At some nod from the consultant, I was dressed in my own clothes, bundled into a van, and dumped into the nearest town. A mobile phone in my pocket, with a single phone number in the contacts. Addicts are creatures of habit, those with the territory. Around other people, Pasha was always too keen to impress to give any truths away. The truth was too mundane. He gave up trying with me a long time ago, and it slipped into his natural accent several times without realizing. Specific enough to identify his hometown, if you paid attention. Other occasions he talked about a club night here, or a landmark there. Enough detail to confirm my suspicions. The town was small, and too many people knew each other's business for Pasha's whereabouts to stay hidden for long. He'd splashed around stolen cash to try and find a hiding place, and I splashed around my own to find him. The squat was on the edge of town. A large house, insides gutted by fire. Recent enough for the stonework to be blackened with soot and the air still thick enough with ash to stick in my throat. The people living there didn't notice. They didn't notice me. They didn't notice what week it was. A bit of bad air wasn't going to bother them. I found Pasha in the basement. Seeing his silhouette, I thought he was praying, knelt in the far corner away from the worst of the leaking pipes dripping verdigris water into stinking pools on the stone flags. The damp made my wrists ache, and I rubbed the still raw skin to ease the pain. I thought about saying his name, but he was always faster than me. We were far beyond trust and loyalty now. At first, I thought the noise was a wasp nest in the room somewhere, the sound of constant chewing and tearing. I stilled my breath and listened. The grinding sounded too familiar. A memory of dead songbirds and decaying rubbish came back. I turned on the torch. I don't know how much giant stove Pasha had used. From the look of him, I guess we were talking kilos. All his teeth had turned to stone, erupted vertically from his upturned face, and started grinding against each other. His skin was split by needle-thin rips. Inch by inch, fat and capillaries were dragged over the tiny menhirs and ground to paste. Around his neck, wet muscle fibers were exposed, stretched taut as they too were dragged upward to be crushed and gnawed. I shone the beam of light into Pasha's face. His eyes were open, staring straight up at the ceiling. Feldspar glittered in his pupils. 
Clear gelatin seeped over his mineralized jaws and down his torn cheeks. Wrapping my jacket around my hand, I rolled up Pasha's trouser leg. Underneath all the dried blood, it was impossible to tell where his ankle ended and the flagstones began. I dialed the number and waited for the call to connect. Papa Yaga came into the basement by himself while his private army cleared the rest of the building. I stood up from where I'd sat, waiting on the damp steps. Aren't you worried it was a trap? He just smiled, and even in the dark I saw his teeth glitter. Where is he? I took him over into the corner and turned the torch on Pasha, the chewing loud enough to drown out the sound of leaking pipes and footsteps on the floor above. He ran a finger over Pasha's face, collected a nail full of pale gel, and rubbed it into his gums. Reaching out, he steadied himself against the wall. A woman came down the stairs, a chainsaw in her gloved hands. You okay, Papa? She said, looking at me and placing the saw on the basement floor. I'm fine. You won't need that. Call our land agent and have him buy this building. When you've done that, bring our guests from the holding cells. As many as you think this place can hold. They paused and nodded toward the stairs. Bring down those individuals you found in the rest of the house. Let's give them a purpose in life. Also, bring our entire stock of giant stole down here. Everything is already on contract and packaged to go out, she said, still looking at me, uncomfortable having this conversation in front of a witness. I knew I was uncomfortable, being a witness to them having this conversation. Take some samples of the white ambergris dribbling from that traitorous fuck in the corner and get them out to our clients in the hour. First, though, make sure we have the deeds to this building. The woman nodded and picked up the saw, leaving me alone in the cellar with Papa Yaga and the constant sound of stone teeth grinding skin to paste. I'm sure you knew you weren't getting out of this room alive, Papa Yaga said, reaching out to take my hands and his. They felt warm and soft, expensive. He massaged the back of my knuckles and leant in until his lips were against my ears. Peppermint on his breath stung my recently healed scars. I hadn't decided whether to let my people take turns on you or cut you up and feed you to our little crushing circle of stones in the corner. But considering the amount of money your ex-friend is going to make for me, I'm giving you one chance to fucking run. I looked at Pasha, now more self-consuming geology than man, and I did exactly what Papa Yaga suggested. I fucking ran. You've been listening to The Jaws of Ouroboros by author Steve Tose. Steve Tose lives in Munich, Germany. His work has appeared in Lackington's, Aurelius, Not One of Us, Cabinet de Fille, and Pantheon Magazine, amongst others. In 2014, 
Callout, first published in Innsmouth Magazine, was reprinted in the Best Horror of the Year 6. From 2014, Steve worked at Becky Cherryman and iMove on Haunt, the Saboteur Award shortlisted project inspired by his own teenage experiences about Harrogate's haunting presence and the lives of people experiencing homelessness in the town. He also likes old motorbikes and vintage cocktails. Truly a man after mine own heart. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. And that also means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program, 
and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. (laughs) 